You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. And I don't know if Louise is able to, but the first verses we're going to look at are verses 15 and 16, and then we'll work through it to the end of uh, the chapter. Isaiah 59, which you'll find on page 746. And the background to this, again, if you're new here and you've not, we've been preaching through this, and the background to it is that uh, God's people faced a time of great turmoil internationally and nationally and in their own lives. And we've been seeing how that connects with where we are at as well. Uh, I'm intrigued if I use the words, if I begin to say, all around me are familiar faces, worn out places, whether you'd be able to complete the rest of it and sing the song. Some of you will know Tears for Fears. Others of you, of course, uh, will know Donnie Darko uh, and Gary Jules' version of it, and the rest of you are going, what are you talking about? Um, so uh, for those of you who are saying, what are you talking about? Let me just uh, read the first part of it, because I think it's, it's such a beautifully evocative song, and it's a good place for us to come in and think about how the Word of God applies to where we are today. All around me are familiar faces. I'll not sing it for you. I'll spare you that. Worn out places, worn out faces. Bright and early for the daily races, going nowhere, going nowhere. Their tears are filling up their glasses. No expression, no expression. Hide my head. I want to drown my sorrow. No tomorrow, no tomorrow. And I find it kind of funny. I find it kind of sad. The dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I find it hard to tell you. I find it hard to take. When people run in circles, it's a very, very mad world. It's a mad world. And I think that some of us sometimes feel that. You, you, you see what's going on and you're thinking, how bizarre is this? How, how can it get any more surreal and twisted? And the answer is probably, sadly, yes. But... Then people look and they say, well, look, is anyone there? And does anyone actually care? And that's the reaction of God's people to what's going on. It just doesn't make any sense what had happened to Israel. And there's just so much suffering and so much pain and, and so many promises that were given to God's people that, that don't seem to be working out. So in Isaiah 59, uh, we find the answer to that in verse 15, truth is nowhere to be found. Whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The previous verses, basically, it's describing what's going on in the culture. And then this is the reaction. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to in intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. The Lord is appalled. There's no justice, truth is nowhere to be found, and there's no one to help. There's no one who stands against injustice. There's no one who speaks against evil. There's no one who cares for the poor. And the important thing to grasp here is that the situation is beyond all human help. And if you want an analogy today, I would suggest think of Aleppo. In your, you're in East Aleppo, and people are bunging rockets, and the Syrian army are 
piling in rockets and, and chemical weapons and so on to you. The Russians are bombing you. And you're in West Aleppo. And the rebels and uh, the jihadists and so on are doing exactly the same. And you see one photograph of a Syrian child or a Syrian baby lying dead. And it appalls us. And yet there are thousands of such situations. It's beyond all human help. And what is happening here is that we really need to grasp in our situations that we're done. We're beyond all human help. And that's very hard for us to grasp because we always think we can do something. But where's God in all of this? What does he think about it? Does he really care? And the answer is really interesting. It's not just that he cares. It's not just so often there's a kind of Christianity which says God looks and he goes, oh, isn't that a shame? That's just, that's just terrible what's happening there. He's appalled. Appalled. The word used indicates shattered, devastated. He's displeased, if you like, that there's no one to intervene and no one to save. Now, here's a problem for those who have got a good theological understanding. You should be astonished that God is astonished. Doesn't he know? Why is he appalled? Why doesn't he just say, I knew this. I knew this would happen. This doesn't indicate that God is surprised, but rather it indicates that what he thinks about it. The, the idea of the cold, stoical God the one who's playing a sim game with human beings is not one that fits with the God of the Bible. Later on in Isaiah 63 verse 5, which we'll come to, I looked, says the Lord, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. We went to uh, see the film The Queen of Catway yesterday, which, by the way, is absolutely highly recommended. An incredibly moving film. It doesn't sound great because it's about chess, but it's about chess in Uganda. So for me, I was, I, I was already there because I love chess and we've got so much connections with Uganda. Uganda's coming up all the time. And, but, but the film itself, the thing that struck me about the film more than anything else was just the absolute injustice of the poverty that so many people face. Um, because it is about a girl who comes from one of the slums in Kampala. And it's actually a true story. And who became uh, a chess champion, a world chess champion. And there's one scene in which her sister, the, her mother is saying to the sister, the sister's looking for a way out of poverty. And basically prostitution or get yourself a rich man, a sugar daddy or something like that. And the mother says, well, God, God won't approve of that. And, and she just looks and says, God doesn't care. And that kind of desperation and despair, God doesn't care. That is not true. The, this verse actually came into my mind about, I looked and there was no one who gave help, no one who gave support. So what does God do? Another example of that is in the New Testament with Jesus. In Luke 19 verse 41 as Jesus approached the city, he wept over it. He, he cared about Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem. And then, within about three verses, you get him going into the temple, 
and being so angry at the religious people who were making money in his father's house that he turned out the money changers with a whip. God cares and cares with a passion that we cannot grasp or understand or become anywhere near. The Lord is appalled, and he was appalled at what was happening to his people and in his world. Then verse 17, what did he do? He acted his own arm work salvation for him, verse 16 says. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. His arm. Now, that's a common usage in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, and especially in Isaiah. And the arm is his strength. It's the Lord working with all his power. Uh, Grateful to John for praying for my cracked clavicle, if that's how you pronounce it. it's, I tell you this, uh, having your arm in a sling and not being able to use it, it's really frustrating. You can't drive and you can't cycle in the best week for cycling in the year. And you can't write and you can't punch anyone. Not that I would want to do that. But there's, there's so many things that you can't do. And you realize just how important your arm is. Because, you know, you're, you're working with it. You're doing things. Even last week, preaching in a sling I, I like my hands, and just it was really kind of strange moving them around within a sling. But God's arm is what God does. And what's being said here is God's arm, if you like, is not in a sling, not bound. It's the Lord working with all his power. And the answer that we have as Christians is simply this what the Lord is and what he can do are the solutions to the world's problems. Calvin, by these words, he means that we ought not to despair, although we receive no assistance from men. Yet reducing to nothing every other assistance, he pronounces the salvation of his own nation and consequently of all mankind to be owing from first to last to God's undeserved goodness and absolute power. So what Isaiah is teaching us is that God acts and God saves and God works. And he gives an account here of God dressing the clothing that he puts on. Of course, it's imagery, but it's powerful imagery. It's the clothing of a soldier because God is going out to fight the injustice, to destroy his enemies, and to defeat the spiritual blindness. Just even to list the things, he puts on righteousness as his breastplate. This is God's righteous anger against evil, not capricious anger, not this is just really annoying me, but the anger that we feel when we see injustice, but without our sinful reactions. Isaiah 46, verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are now far from my righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Now, please listen to this very carefully. There's a kind of Christianity and a kind of theology and a kind of excuse that people make for not believing, which says that if bad things happen, it means I'm not going to believe in God because it means that God is letting that happen and therefore he doesn't really care or he's not powerful enough to prevent it. And so 
they create this image of a God who, if he exists, would make sure that everyone lived in Disneyland all the time. Everything was perfect. Everything worked well. And that's not the world in which we live. But the God who created this world, which has good and evil within it, evil because we fell and turned away from him, is the God who still cares. He doesn't come in instantly and say, right, I'm going to fix everything, because in order to do that, he would have to wipe out the world and wipe out us. But he sends salvation. He works his salvation, and it's on him that we totally and utterly depend. You know, we, we prayed for Adele, and in one sense, it's a tremendously sorrowful situation when you know that your mother is dying, when you know that your wife is dying. And uh, those of you who know Adele, you know that she's had very severe dementia. But the great comfort in the family that I see is just simply this. They know that they are utterly dependent upon the Lord. And what I find fascinating in her situation is, and I find this incredible, that in her dementia, she can forget everyone, but she's never forgotten the Lord. And you sing a hymn to her, and she joins in. She gets it. And for me, the greatest comfort of all in that situation, and I was talking to David about it, is the Lord will never forget his people. Never. And that's the comfort. The Lord acts. He brings the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation on his head. That is the deliverance of the people, the garments of vengeance, which is just really the just requital of his, of his foes. It's, it's, he's, he's defending his people, the cloak of zeal. It's not, again, it's the, such the opposite of God not caring. Oh, God doesn't really care. I have to get God to care for me. It's the determination by which he will bring the work to completion. God is determined to save his people. I think the amazing thing here, and there's so many amazing things, but one of them is this. We think we have to give God something so that he can work. Lord, we'd like you to work, but you really do need us. We wonder what he can do without us, such is our arrogance. But he doesn't need us, but we need him. And that's why this passage is reflected in Ephesians chapter 6, very famous verses about putting on the armor of the Lord. That's the model for us as we resist evil and battle for truth. Because if you are a Christian, you are in a battle, and you will be in a battle till the day that you die. But it's a battle in which you have the Lord's armor, and there's nothing can prevail against that. So let's go on to verse 18. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. The Lord's anger or his strict justice. We're looking and we're saying, this is unfair. In the same community, there's a, a in Mumbai in, in India, there is the richest home in the world owned by an individual. And within half a mile of it, there are the poorest slums in the world. So there are people who are bathing in gold and diamonds and pearls and people who are starving. And it's just so wrong. But God will bring justice. 
And the interesting thing here is that God is saying, I'll bring justice for my people. Romans 12, 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will replay, says the Lord. It's an awesome thought that God is so committed to his people, he will not stand by as they are destroyed by Satan and those whom Satan uses. God so loves his people that he's the one who takes vengeance for us. And that's why Christians never take revenge. We shouldn't. Because we know that the Lord will deal with our enemies. If we seek to take revenge, what we're saying is, we don't trust you, God. We're going to do it ourselves. What we should be saying is, we don't trust ourselves, our understanding, our motives, our temper, our anger. This is entirely wrong what's happened to us. But we trust entirely that God will deal with it. Now, I hope you can see what an immensely practical teaching that is because you might even have a minor situation, relatively minor. Someone at work is mistreating you. Someone in your family has not been treating you too well. Some friend has let you down. Some injustice has occurred at the university. And all of us instinctively, we want to fight back. We want to make people suffer. We carry grudges at least if you're a normal human being, you do. You may be the kind of person who just doesn't. But um, I'm not sure I believe you if you say that. I, I'm, I'm like this as well. And what I need to learn is to say, Lord, if this happened to me and it was wrong and it was unjust, you fix it, you sort it, you deal with it. I don't have the capacity or the understanding or the time to to deal with every unjust and wrong situation in my own life, never mind other people's, but you do. And I trust you absolutely. And then verse 19, from the west men will fear the name of the Lord and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. And again, you'll notice as in the rest of Isaiah and indeed the whole of the Bible that this is God calls people from all over the world, all over the world. When Jesus heard this, Matthew 8, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring people from all over the world. That New York clip I mentioned of Matt Redman singing in Times Square, as well as the astonishment on some people's faces, what is going on here? Was you could, the thing that struck me most was you looked at the people who were worshiping and who were singing, and, and you could tell that they were meaning what they sang. And they were white and black and Chinese and Asian and every age and so many different backgrounds. And you think, that's what the Christian church is. We're people from all over the world. And it's, that's what brings glory to God. They will come and they will reveal his glory. They will revere his glory. They will worship his glory. They'll no longer mock. They will no longer despise. They will no longer question. The glory of the Lord will be revealed as the waters cover the sea. They will know his name. And when they know his name, they will bow down and worship. And today, in every single country in the world, 
your brothers and sisters are bowing down and worshiping Jesus. That is just a wonderful, you know, if you were in Israel at this time, if you were in Babylon at this time and you were told that, you would go, yeah, right, that's going to happen. But it's happened. The Lord's glory is being revealed. And they are brought by the breath of the Lord, his spirit. Now, there's a difficulty in translation here because it could mean that they're under the judgment of God. He'll come like a penitent flood. And that's one way of translating it. But the old way, I think, is better than what the NIV has. When an adversary comes in like a stream, the Spirit of the Lord lifts a banner against him. And that's the, the picture of the kind of right kind of fear that we are to have when it seems as though the devil's coming in like a flood. And you're thinking, how is this possible? How can we stand? It just, it's just more and more and more. And this river that's coming, this turbulent rushing stream, this kind of tsunami, and it seems as though it's about to destroy everything. And God says he raises up his banner. The Spirit of the Lord lifts a banner against him. It's like in the, in the film last night, there's a scene where the um, slum is uh, swept by a flood and the child has been left in a cot and is being holding on, holding on. And the flood's about to sweep them away and then the mother comes in and as strong as can be, stands there in the midst of the flood. And that's the image that's been given here, that whatever your circumstances, whatever's going on in the culture, whatever is going on in your life, the Lord lifts up his banner and it's his name that's on it and you cling to that. The Lord is in the midst, standing there, raising his banner and asking us to stand with him. Verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. The Redeemer, as always in the Bible, is someone who pays the full price to buy us back, to set free his people to those who repent. He is coming. And the fact that God is coming is significant for everybody because it's a call to all of us to repent. Mark 1, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And here's the great Christian message that we have everywhere for everyone, for you, for the people of Dundee or wherever you're from. It's just simply this. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The Lord comes as Redeemer. God's people are saying, what are you doing, God? Where are you? What, how, what, how have you helped? And God says, I've sent my son. I've come as Redeemer. And that leads to verse 21, which is the climax of all of this. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children, or from the mouths of their descendants, from this time on and forever, says the Lord. God's covenant, God's promise, God's deal, if you like. There's a new one. There's a mediator, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And it has two great things in it. 
First of all, I'm going to send you my spirit. That's the promise fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. I'm not going to leave you to work things out for yourself. I'm going to send you my spirit. I'm going to give you new life. And then I'm going to give you my words. In fact, here it's not even just that we're given the words, but we are able to speak the words of God. So we have the word and the spirit. And when we are in trouble and when we are asking, Lord, what's happening? And Lord, what's going on? We don't look to our own strength. We look to God and we say, Lord, what have you done? And he's saying, I sent you my son. You have my word. You have my spirit. The spirit preserves and applies that word. He gives us teachers in the church to teach that word. And these are great gifts, not side issues. I heard a man today, a respected kind of evangelical, saying in an interview, when asked about whether the Bible was inerrant or totally true, he says, that's not a question I like to answer. And I thought, why not? Why don't you like to answer? And he, he basically, he waffled for 10 minutes. And I thought, just save your breath. Just say, this is the word of God and what it says, God says. We've been deprived as the Lord's people of this tremendous confidence because people have, even in the pulpit, have undermined the word of God. And it's that that God has given us to comfort us in the midst of all our troubles and difficulties. And that covenant, by the way, is fantastic because look what it says. Or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever. Stephanie's going to be baptized on her own profession of faith. But what a tremendous testimony and joy for Thanos and Maria to see that being fulfilled, God's covenant promise being fulfilled. It's a trite saying. I saw it in a tract once. God has no grandchildren. That's rubbish. Think about it. If you're God's child... What does that make your children? God's child's children. What's that? Of course God cares for our descendants. Not, none of us would bring any children into this world if we didn't trust and believe that the Lord would ultimately take care of them. It's a fantastic promise the Lord gives to his people or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time forth and forever. See, that's why I have confidence. I don't have confidence because Britain or Scotland is a Christian nation. It's long gone. I don't have confidence because particular denominations are good or bad or whatever. I don't have confidence in my own ability. I don't have confidence in the circumstances around. I know that all these things can change. But this is the confidence that we need to have. Apostasy will never destroy the church because in every age, God will have those who speak his word and who are sustained by his spirit and who make sure that his people are called in. God will be glorified throughout the earth. And it's such a wonderful thing to see that promise being fulfilled. It may be that the church in Scotland will continue to decline. We, we, we pray that it doesn't. But I know that the church of Christ throughout the world will never decline. 
And overall, you look and you're just amazed at what the Holy Spirit is doing in China and in Africa and in South America. God's word will never return to empty. This is my covenant. I'll send my spirit and I'll send my word. So when we say it's a mad world, when we see people running around in circles, when we are distressed at what's going on and we hide our head, we want to drown our sorrow, people are going nowhere, the Christian is able to say, you know, you're right. The world is like that. But God saw, God acted, and God is revealing his glory. And we today celebrate that and we know that. And whether we're sitting at the deathbed of a loved one, or whether we're celebrating the birth of a child, or whether we're anxious about what's going on in our families or our own health or work tomorrow, whether we're concerned about our studies, whether we're facing up to some particular sin, temptation, and darkness in our own life, some discouragement and depression, all of us can look up and we can see that there is a Redeemer who has come to his people, and we can cry out to him in the absolute assurance that he will hear and he will bless. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Apply it to us. Enable us to see its beauty and the truth, and especially the beauty and the glory of the one whom it proclaims, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. If any of us here are overwhelmed by personal or indeed uh, national circumstances, concern for our country, concern for our community, concerned about our work situations, concerned about our families or our own hearts, Help us to realize that we can't fix it, but you call us to you. There is a Redeemer, and you are that Redeemer. Thank you for uh, reminding us of that. And just as you reminded your people 3,000 years ago, so you continue to remind them. And Lord, receive and accept our worship and thanks in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.